Will you please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. And these brothers are coming forward because they have Bibles that uh, they want to distribute to anybody who would like one. And we would like everybody to be able to look at the passage we'll be considering in Isaiah 9. Those Bibles are marked at that passage, so you can just open to the page that's marked. And those Bibles are our gift to you. If you would like a copy of God's Word, please keep that. For the last two months, we've heard about and seen the annual parade of people and things that are associated with Christmas. Names like St. Nicholas, a particular pronunciation of which gives us Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, from which those great theologians, the Beach Boys, were able to name his sled the Little St. Nick. And then there's Kris Kringle, and her reindeer, and elves, and cookies, and milk, and trees, and mistletoe, poinsettias, family, fun, food, gifts, bills, anxiety. Now, my guess is that most of us have no idea where many of these traditions came from, and I confess that I don't either. But I, like you, am very glad that we have them, minus the bills and the anxiety. But whether or not we know the origin of all that we presently associate with Christmas, we certainly need to know this, that it is first and foremost about Christ. And it's particularly about Christ's birth. But who is he? And why is his birth something to celebrate, something so important? One of the traditions of the Christmas holiday is listening to George Friedrich Handel's musical composition, The Messiah. It's all scripture set to music. And one of the songs in Handel's Messiah comes directly from our text today in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of His government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that day on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now clearly, this child is born to be a king. And this morning, I want us to see why the birth of this child and his future kingdom are worth celebrating. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we again thank you for this time of year where we especially focus our minds on the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this sacred hour hour now. And we ask you to allow us to focus our attention upon what you say in your word. And help us to have open hearts, to be changed by it for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in order to understand what these verses are telling us, we need to know something about the history that precedes when these were written. They were written in about 700 B.C. And you'll notice that there are a bunch of pages that precede Isaiah in your Bible. 
In fact, Isaiah is the 23rd book in the Bible, and many of the 22 that come before it contain information that affects what you find in Isaiah. So let me summarize 3,300 years of history that comes before Isaiah in two minutes. The first three chapters of the first book of the Bible tell us what the rest of the story of the Bible is all about. Those chapters give us three themes that you find throughout the rest of Scripture. The first of those is, of course, creation. And in creation, God gives instructions about who He is and what He requires from His creatures. But then we have in chapter 3 what is called the fall, the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world. And sin is about who we are then and what our problem is, and you find that theme then throughout the rest of Scripture. But thankfully, it's not left at that. If it's left at our sin and what our problem is, well, then we continue with that problem indefinitely. But the Bible has a third theme introduced in that third chapter of the first book of the Bible, and that is redemption. God making right what has gone wrong because of the entrance of sin into his world. And God introduces this theme of making right what has gone wrong, redeeming in chapter 3 and verse 15, where the Bible says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, God says, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And so God is saying this, I'm going to make right what's gone wrong by the entrance of sin into my world, and I'm going to do it through one who will come through the seed of the woman, one who will come into the human race. And he introduces that in the third chapter of the Bible. And so there's going to be this one born into the human race who will be the solution to sin. And then the rest of the Bible is about God, the Creator's relentless mission to fix the problem of sin. And to do so by fixing people like us, who now come into the world as sinners. So when we come to a passage like Isaiah 9, about this child who would be born, the one who would come as the solution to sin, we should think about what I have in the outline. That's inserted in your program. If you don't already have that out, I encourage you to take a look at that. And I say there in the outline that at Christmas, as we look at passages like Isaiah 9, we should be reminded of a couple of things. The first one is this. That God is reversing the effects of the fall. God is reversing the effects of the fall. Now, Isaiah preached, prophesied for about 60 years. He did that during the reign of four different kings. And his preaching, as you'll read in the 66 chapters that comprise the book of Isaiah, was a combination of warning and of comfort. Warning that failure to live up to God's requirements will bring grief, sometimes calamity, including being dispossessed from the land. But then he also issues a note throughout of, of comfort to his people as well, despite their sin. And so verse 6 of our passage in chapter 9 begins with the word for. For to us a child is born. And the for connects what follows with what goes before. And what goes before in chapter 9 
are good things that are going to happen to God's people despite the warnings of what's going to happen if you continue in your current path of sin. And so notice verse 1 of chapter 9. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So all of these great things are going to happen because. Four in verse six. Because a child is born. Because a son is given. But notice that chapter 9 and these good things that are going to happen is connected to what goes before it because verse 1 actually begins with, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. Nevertheless, connects then, in fact, contrasts what we read in those five verses with what's at the end of chapter 8. These good things are contrasted with what you see in verse 21. Look at chapter 8. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. And then, nevertheless, verse 1, this gloom will turn to light. And all of these great things will happen as recorded in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9. For because, verse 6, a child is born and a son is given. And you see this pattern throughout the first nine chapters of Isaiah. Doom and gloom, judgment, and then a note of hope, and particularly a note of hope in the form of a coming child. Now, why all the doom and gloom? And why the child then? Because that's all the background to what Isaiah is telling us in Isaiah chapter 9. In chapter 12 of Genesis. God identifies the lineage through whom this promised seed, promised in the third chapter of your Bible, the seed of the woman, he identifies the particular lineage through whom he will come. And he calls a man named Abraham, and he says this to him. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now this is a covenant. It's, it's an agreement. It's a promise that God makes to Abraham and then his descendants. And I have emphasized in that passage the several times that God says, I will do this. And the reason that I've done that is because God says this is all going to happen unconditionally. Despite the fact that your descendants 
are people like we read about in Isaiah, who have to be warned over and over again. Despite the fact that they're like that and they are disobedient, I'm still going to do this. I, God, unconditionally, I will perform these things. And God expands on then that covenant, that commitment to his people, the descendants of Abraham, through whom this one promised in Genesis chapter 3 will come. When he says this, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. And indeed, Abram does have a seed, a son, Isaac, and they do become a great nation, Israel, and God gives them his law and a land, and then he says this to them through his prophet Moses later about 500 years after he's given this promise to Abraham. God says this through Moses. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Now you all saw that in his agreement, his promise to Abraham, there were no ifs. In that original promise, it was unconditional. But in this promise and its warnings, it's all conditioned if you obey. And this, too, is another promise. It's an agreement, a covenant that God makes with his people. But this one now is conditional. And if you fail to obey, the passage goes on to say there'll be many problems that come including later in the same chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says this, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, and then the Lord will scatter you. That is, I will give you the land that I promised to your forefather Abraham. But if you disobey me, then you may be removed from it for a period of time. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in the history of God's people. They were brought to the land, they occupied the land, and then they were later removed from the land because of their disobedience. And it happened in a couple of ways. One, about 500 years after God gave this covenant to Moses, he gave his first king of the entire nation, of the entire kingdom of Israel, David. And... David reigned. And then David's son Solomon acceded to the throne. But then after Solomon's reign, in the year 931 B.C., the kingdom was split in two. It was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And because of their sin, because of breaking this covenant given to Moses, they were indeed removed from the land. They were scattered, as God said would happen. The northern kingdom was invaded by a nation called Assyria. And they were not only invaded, but they were taken captive and removed from the land. That happened in the year 722 B.C. Now, why do you care about that? Here's why. Because it is during that period that Isaiah preaches. It is during this 722, 700 B.C. period that Isaiah gives this message. And Isaiah is giving this message primarily to the other kingdom, the southern kingdom, 
And he is warning them that the same calamity that has befallen the northern kingdom, such that they have been removed from the land, will befall you as well. And I am warning you now, based upon the covenant that God gave to our servant Moses, 800 years before, you must obey God, else this is what will befall you. And indeed, it did. A little over 100 years later, the southern kingdom was invaded and taken captive by Babylon. And so the entirety of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is about God's relationship with His chosen people through these covenants. And they are blessed or they are cursed, conditioned on their obedience, but God, hear this, is pursuing His solution to what is wrong all the while and unconditionally. And so you have both of them going on. They sin, they don't meet the conditions, and then the results follow. But all the while, God is still pursuing His unconditional promise to His people. And from time to time, in the midst of the warnings and the judgment through the pen of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, where they are warned, they are also comforted to be reminded God is still pursuing His agenda. And so throughout the Old Testament, the Bible keeps track of the lineage through whom this seed is going to come. It's going to come through, through Abraham, through your seed. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then the Bible keeps track of that seed. And so Isaiah, like Micah and Amos and Jeremiah and Joel, they tell the people what will come upon them because they've disobeyed God, but they always sound this note of hope because God is still at work even in their disobedience. And so Isaiah chapters 1 through 9 have warning of doom and defeat. But then you see a note of hope in passages like ours in verses 6 and 7, but even before that, in chapter 7 of Isaiah and verse 13. If you just turn back a page or two. Chapter 7 and verse 13. Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In the midst of your disobedience and your sin, still, here's a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. In the passage in Matthew, the first book in your New Testament, quotes this passage and applies it to Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, and Matthew one twenty three, Matthew says, which being interpreted means this, God with us. So God continues to pursue His promises despite their disobedience. I just want you to note that He doesn't do this because they're good. They're clearly not good. <laughs> they keep, keep disobeying. They keep sinning. He doesn't do this because they're good, but because He is good. God does this not because they are faithful, but because He is faithful to what He has promised. And this teaches us some things. And I have those for you in your outline. The first is this. We are not forsaken when we sin. Thanks be to God. For unto us a child has been born. And unto us a son has been given. And he is the one who was promised as the solution to our sin. Though we have violated God's commands, we are not 
forsaken as they were not forsaken. And Isaiah reminds them of that in chapter 7 and chapters 9 and particularly in chapters 40 and beyond. Even though you sin, and even though these results and these consequences will come on you, even in your sin, you are not forsaken. And the reason you're not forsaken is because the promised child is coming. And in our case, the promised child has come, thanks be to God. So God is with us. Emmanuel, the promised one. It means that Bethlehem was not the beginning of his existence. As Pastor Matt pointed out in our reading in John chapter 1, he is God the Son from all eternity, but God became man. Bethlehem was not the beginning of his existence. It was the beginning of his mission. And he came on that mission. And as a result of his coming, we can know that despite our sin and our struggles, we are not forsaken by God. Just as God has made unconditional promises in the first part of your Bible that He is fulfilling and will fulfill, absolutely, He has made promises to us in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says that there are people that God has chosen for His very own, that He has, the Bible uses the word predestined. And then verse 30 says this, And those He predestined, He also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are four things that God says about those who belong to him. They have been predestined in eternity past. They have been called and justified in time present. And in the future, they will be absolutely glorified. And he writes it in the past tense as if it's already done. Because it's a promise of Almighty God. And so in the midst of your struggle with sin, the midst of my struggle with sin, I turn to the promise that because this child has been born, because this son has been given, now I can know and have this promise that I am not forsaken even when I sin. There's another thing this teaches us, and I have it in your outline. We're not only not forsaken when we sin, but we're not abandoned when we are victimized. As I had said, Isaiah wrote at the time when this northern kingdom was taken captive into Assyria. But he was writing primarily to the southern kingdom, warning those in his generation about their behavior, but his objective was as well to provide comfort for future generations. Because he knew, based on God's promise, back from Deuteronomy 28, if you disobey, I will remove you from the land. He knew, as they continue in this path, that they they too would be removed from the land. And there would be future generations who would need the comfort of knowing that God's program is still intact and is still moving apace according to God's calendar. And so he writes this promise for them as well. And indeed, they were taken captive by the Babylonians a bit over a hundred years later. And so verse number six says this, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. And notice what it says in verse six, the government will be upon his shoulders. Now you think about being one of these exiles in Babylon reading that. 
And you're under the government of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's ruling the world. And you've been dispossessed from the land and carted physically to Babylon. You're Daniel. You all know the book of Daniel. It's all about that. You're Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here Isaiah writes to them and reminds them that God is still keeping his promise despite the fact that you're exiled. Despite the fact that you have been, you have been victimized. As you read about the life of Daniel, about his, about his friends who were removed from the land, the Bible gives no hint that they particularly were responsible for this removal from the land. But nevertheless, they're victimized by it. And they're taken captive as a result of it. But they're reminded here that there's a government that is coming. A government that will be ruled by this child who will then grow to be the king and the government will be on his shoulders. When it says the government will be on his shoulders, it's a picture of the royal robe that would be laid across the shoulders of the king. And so it means this. Now think about it. It means that God must be in control of those who come before in their kingdoms and as kings in order for him to be able to guarantee that there is coming a time when the government will be on his shoulders. So even this government that you are ruled by now is only temporary. Even Babylon, even Assyria, even America, even Rome in the time of Jesus, whatever it is, it is all only temporary because there is coming a time when the government will be upon his shoulders and that will happen because God is in control of all of the governments that exist. And so it's a comfort to all who have been exiled. <laughs> and we just finished 1 Peter. And do you remember that 1 Peter was written to those who are exiled? Those of us that are living, as it were, in a strange land, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so in our exile, we remember God is in control. And that's what Isaiah is reminding them of in verses 6 and 7. He had told them this in the covenant that he made with Moses in Deuteronomy 31. You will take possession of the land. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God goes with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. So I say we are not abandoned even when we are victimized. Or in this case, even when, even when we sin, we are not forsaken all because of the unconditional promise of God to his people fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the seed that was promised. He's the child that would come, on whose shoulders will be the government in ruling his world and his people. And God gave other prophecies, predictions about him. He not only gave the line through whom he would come, through Abraham, he narrowed it down to say it will not only come through Abraham and then Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. But he narrowed down the one tribe of those 12 through whom this chosen one, this child, the seed of the woman would come. He did that in the very first book of the Bible. Notice, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Judah, one of those sons of Jacob, one of those tribes. And this one who will come, yes, will come through Abraham and now Isaac and now Jacob, but particularly he's going to come through 
the tribe of, and lineage of, of Judah. The scepter, that is, the rulership, the kingship, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And so God made a third agreement, a third promise, a third covenant. One with Abraham, one with Moses, but he made another with David. David, a descendant in the lineage of the tribe of Judah, who became the first king, the first true king of the monarchy of of Israel. And in that agreement, God said this to David, your throne will be established forever. So the government will be upon his shoulder. What kind of government will it be? Verse 7 tells us. Notice what verse 7 says. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. Because this one who is going to come is going to come through the tribe of Judah. And David comes through Judah. And now Jesus is a descendant of of Judah and then of David. And so we call him son of David. And we call Bethlehem the the city of of David. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Notice the character of this kingdom over which this child who will grow into the king will rule. It will be forever. We're told in verse 7, regimes and presidencies and nations come and go, but his kingdom will be forever. And verse 7 tells us it will establish true justice and righteousness. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. (laughs) We live in a time where people know nothing about righteousness. Know nothing about God's standard. But he will establish and, and require adherence to God's righteous standard. And he will execute justice in the kingdom that Scripture speaks about In the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, in particular, Revelation chapter 20, near the end of your Bible. And there will be, believe it or not, (laughs) people in that kingdom. I don't have time to explain this. It's kind of weird. But there will be people in that kingdom who are there in their, their natural bodies, still with their sinful nature for a period of a thousand years, the Bible teaches. And at the end of that thousand years, they will actually try to bring about a an insurrection against the king, the Lord Jesus. And here we're told he will execute justice rightly and swiftly. There'll be nobody who gets away with it on a technicality. There will be no such thing as five life terms. What does that mean? How many many lives did you get? Now Isaiah expected all of this to happen, absolutely. But Isaiah was writing all of this and preaching all of this in 700 B.C., 2,700 years ago now. And he expected, like all the prophets in the first part of your Bible, that all of this was going to happen the first time the child, the chosen one, the Messiah, the seed comes. That this would all happen in one coming. In fact, the apostles, Jesus' first followers, after he had spent the three years with them teaching them, about the purpose of His coming and preparing them for the fact that He would come again. 
After he has died on the cross, after he has raised from the dead, he's giving them final instructions, and they ask this question of him in Acts chapter 1. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still expecting this to happen. It is still going to happen because God has promised it. But what Isaiah didn't know and they didn't know, the apostles, what it would not, was that it would not happen in one coming, but rather two. And you see this in the prophecies of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah speaks of the kingdom and the, and the king and what the kingdom will be like. And then in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah speaks of the fact that this one, the Messiah, who will come will be bruised. In fact, he will be killed. He will be crushed. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You all are familiar with that. So in the 66 chapters of Isaiah, you have both things. You have him as the king coming to establish his kingdom, but at the same time, he's going to be one who will suffer and even die. How do you put those two things together? And he thinks he's going to come at one time and he's going to do all of this. All of it's going to happen, but Isaiah thinks it's going to happen in one coming, and he's not able to put it together, as we'll see in a moment. Isaiah, well, excuse me, Luke chapter 4 quotes Isaiah in the New Testament. Isaiah 61, and here's what Luke 4 says as Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he sat down. Now notice that I have highlighted for you there, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Jesus ends his quotation, right there. Well, here's what Isaiah 61 says. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, and then it says all those other things. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and so on. But then it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but it goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't quote the day of vengeance of our God piece. Here's why. Because he came once to do the first piece. And he's coming a second time to do the second piece. And Isaiah wrote that, and Jesus quoted that from Isaiah. But Isaiah didn't know how that was going to fit together. And that's why in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says this. Concerning the salvation, the prophets, like Isaiah, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care. Here's what they were trying to do. They were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted two categories of things, suffering and glory. How are both of those going to happen? And they're going to happen in two comings. So God is still reversing the effects of the fall. Despite our sin, despite our failure to live up to what he has told us to do, his promise to his people will remain secure. But secondly, in your outline, God is pursuing his glory. God is reversing the effects of the fall, and we should think about that at Christmas because that's why this child was born. That's why this son was given. But also we should think about this at Christmas God is pursuing His glory. I want to just quickly point out a couple of things in this passage about His glory. Verse number 6 gives us the character of this king, and it's the character of this king that displays His glory. 
His character displays His glory. And what is that character like? Verse 6 says, His name will be called four things. Wonderful Counselor. Now in the King James, there's a comma after wonderful. So it looks like there are actually five things. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But there are actually four. Wonderful and Counselor go together. Wonderful modifies Counselor. So Handel has, if you know the thing, Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. You want me to go on? All right. <laughs> so he separates those. The King James separates those. There are four. His character is the Wonderful Counselor. And what does it mean? It means this, I say in your outline. He plans, he plans what he does. That is, this king is a man of purpose. He has counsel, he has plans, he has purposes. And these plans are wonderful, they're to be wondered at. And so in Isaiah 28, it says this, All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel, magnificent in wisdom. So when it says he's the wonderful counselor, he is the one who has purpose and plan and his creatures wonder at the marvel of his plan. He is one who plans what he does, but secondly, he's the mighty God. And that means this in your outline, he accomplishes what he plans. You see, it is one thing for us to have purposes and plans. I have them, you have them. But are they not always subject to change? Hear this. God's purposes are never subject to change. And they are never subject to change because he controls all of the circumstances that make them happen. <laughs> and how does he control all the circumstances that make them happen? He's the mighty God. And what is his character like? Okay, he's this God who has these purposes and whatever he says is going to happen. But that could be a scary thing, but it is not a scary thing. Quite the contrary. For those who are his children, his people, and in the palm of his hand because... Verse 6 tells us a third thing about his character. He's the everlasting father. It means he cares for his people. He uses this ability, infinite ability, for the good of his people. And that's why he's called the everlasting father. Now, some of you who know something about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we know here this is predicting, talking about the time that God the Son would come to earth as we celebrate at Christmas and yet it calls him the Everlasting Father. It's not saying he's God the Father. He's not. He's God the Son. There's God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. It is saying that in the way that he rules, he will have compassion like a father. Psalm number 103 speaks of this. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And then there's a fourth aspect of his character. He is the Prince of Peace. And I say in your outline, that means he calms what he controls. And what I mean is this. Do you, you all remember when Jesus was out on the lake and a violent storm arose? And the God who, who controls nature said, peace, be still. And when Jesus returns, he will come and he will calm all that he controls. And what does he control? Everything and everybody. And the Bible teaches that there will be a war taken on by the Prince of Peace. He will bring in that peace because he will subdue and calm everything that he controls. 
And then he will preside over a time of peace as its prince, as its king. So God is reversing the effects of the fall. And he is, we should remember at Christmas, pursuing his glory relentlessly. His character displays his glory, verse 6 tells us. And then lastly, in verse 7, his desire achieves his glory. Now, why do I say that? Verse 7 ends this way. The zeal of the Lord God will accomplish this. When it says the zeal of the Lord God, that word zeal is the same word for jealousy. You could put the jealousy of the Lord God will accomplish this. Now, what does that mean? What's God jealous for? God is jealous for his own glory. He said through the prophet Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. And because God is absolutely determined to achieve his glory in his world, then that will motivate him to make sure that everything that he has promised, he will do on behalf of his people. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am jealous for my glory. He tells us over and over in the first part of Scripture. And so in your take-home truth, we say this. Christmas brings great joy. I bring you good tidings of great joy, said the angels. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, speaks of rejoicing and joy. Christmas brings that great joy because it reminds us that we are part of God's grand story. We're part of that. And God's story that he began really in eternity past and now has been pursuing since in the beginning God created and since the garden and predicting and prophesying and confirming through his, his prophets and in history, all of it centered on this child king and all, in all of that grand story, I'm part of that story. You're part of that story. And you should remember that at Christmas. Despite your sin, despite what you've done, despite what's happened to you, God keeps his promises to his people, and you're part of that grand story. Now, I say you're part of that grand story. Stay with me for just a couple more minutes. You are, everyone here is, Everyone in the world is because they are his subjects and his creatures. Everybody works for God, even if they don't do so voluntarily. You're part of God's story, but the question is, which part are you in? What part do you play? If you're in the family of God, if you have a relationship with God, then all of these promises and these blessings of God belong to you. And he will produce them despite your sin, despite your victimization, what you've done, what's happened to you. And Jesus made this promise to his first followers before, the night before he died. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This is for his people. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. But hear this, dear friends. He came to be king. And he will be acknowledged as the king. And every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The Bible tells us that in Philippians chapter 2. And notice, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And under the earth. I quipped earlier that there's a special place in purgatory for. For those of you who are guests, there is no purgatory. Okay. I was kidding. There are two places. There's heaven and there's hell. And hell's under the earth. And even those under the earth through clenched teeth will be forced to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. We all fit into the plan. We all fit into the story. The question is, what role do we play in the story? Am I God's child? Or am I outside God's family because of my disobedience and my sin? And God makes promises about that as well. And warnings. So how can I have this relationship with God? This would be the greatest thing to happen at this Christmas 2013. Well, how does that happen? You realize that you are a sinner. You recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. Repent. Lord, I want to give my life to you. I want to follow you with my life. I want to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. So we're going to bow and pray and we're going to be finished. But as we do, I urge you, I, I beg you, that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior in life. He will be your Lord then in life and in death and in his future kingdom so that you will acknowledge his lordship, but you will acknowledge it voluntarily and gladly and joyfully. And he offers you that opportunity now. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for Christmas. We thank you for what it emphasizes. We thank you for allowing us this time to focus our attention upon the child who is king and who will come in his kingdom. Help us, Lord, to honor him as our king, to receive him in, in the present, so that we can know the joy of a relationship with you now and forever. Thank you, Lord God, that Christmas reminds us that you are the faithful God, you are the mighty God, that you carry out your promises despite our sin. We are not forsaken. We are not abandoned even when victimized. So help we, your people, to remember that this Christmas. And Lord, I pray that today would be the day of rescue, deliverance, salvation for some in this room. That they would acknowledge that Jesus is Lord from their hearts to you. That they would give their lives to you, acknowledging their sin and that understanding and acknowledging that Jesus is the only payment for their sin. We ask you, Lord, to adopt them, bring them into your family. And change them from the inside out so that they, like we, can be your subjects now, bringing glory to you with our lips and our lives. We pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus, our King. Amen.